Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. You know, we have some we have some breaking news today, and that is that suddenly everything is terrible. That's the breaking news. Things are not great. And uh, no, I'm not I'm not saying there's some like, you know, we're recording this podcast uh, about 1215 on Wednesday, uh, I guess, Wednesday afternoon. Um, So, no, there's not there's not uh, some dramatic new bad news, but we're in a bit of a rough spot as a country. We're certainly in a bit of a rough spot if you're someone who's uh, generally a supporter of President Biden, who, you know, uh, is is behind at least directionally where he is wanting to take the country uh it's it's not a great time um and i think you know we've talked about this before that clearly you know his uh, the president's poll numbers have really tumbled over the last two or three weeks which is uh there's always a sort of a hesitancy some people have to to um to admit that they are tuned in to public opinion surveys and stuff like that. But I certainly am. I always have been. And the reality is that's the mood of the country. That's a reality. It's not it's not like, you know, it's not some trivial thing that you're like, you're going to be above or something like that. And they've really taken a tumble. And uh, as we've talked about before, I think a significant in some ways, the sort of the core driver of this is, I think, disappointment over the situation with the pandemic. We thought it was kind of over, and it's clearly not over. And that is uh, disappointing, demoralizing. Uh, you know, there's a lot of argument. There's a lot of good argument, I think, that it's not it's not the president's fault, but he's the president. And, uh, you, you know, president, it's it's not a fair job. You get you get credit for things you didn't do. You get blamed for things you didn't do. Um, I saw I saw some you know some polling data a few days ago. Not you know presidential approval, but basically, you know, are you worried you're going to get sick from COVID? Something like that. And over the course of the summer, maybe even just like you know June through the beginning of August, like six weeks, it went from I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but you know something like twenty five percent to fifty percent, like a lot. A lot. And is that whether that is a an accurate estimation of risk is it is another matter, but it gives you a very palpable sense of the focus. People were ready to put this behind them, and they're still ready to put it behind them, but they can't put it behind them now. And that sucks. Uh, and you see it in in the president's approval numbers, and then you have Afghanistan. And, you know, I have uh, here in the podcast and in things I write in the editor's blog, I've made very clear that I think a lot of the blow up over that has been misinformed and often disingenuous. And yet people's reactions are what they are. And it has clearly had a big effect, at least in the short term, on the president's popularity. Um, and I think what we're seeing is, is those two things, even though very unrelated, right, but they have really shifted uh, the national mood, and that you know that, that there is a bit of a pattern that that often happens in the summer after a president's inauguration. It certainly happened to Barack Obama back in two thousand nine. Um, I think it happened to uh, President Bush way back in two thousand. Obviously, nine uh, eleven put a put a pretty dramatic end to that. Uh, but all those things are happening, and it is happening not at a great time politically. And legislatively, for the president and the Democratic Party, because you've got this whole kind of jangling, big, uh, uh, you know, roped together double piece of legislation that is is moving through Congress. And it's not a good time for the president to lose popularity, because I'll tell you, if the president's uh, approval rating is now in the mid 40s, which it seems to be. That is, presidents with their popularity in the mid-40s have a hard time getting, getting laws passed. 
And as we're going to talk about today, uh, you know, uh, Joe Manchin has been uh, uh, torturing other Democrats for the last week or two. You know, he came out with this uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, itself a bit of a provocation, right? If you're going to tell Democrats that you're about (laughs) to fuck them, basically, if you do it on the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, you're just kind of rubbing it in, right? Right. I'm kind of I'm going to announce this from the enemy's house, basically. So um, and then and then uh, yesterday through Axios or Politico, one of their newsletters, something like that, he basically said three point five trillion. How about one trillion? So kind of like not not three point four trillion or even two point five trillion, like like nothing remotely close to what you're talking about. And he said something like, well, maybe one point five trillion now. As, as we said in our morning write-up of this, you know, this is negotiation. He's not going to tell you exactly where he's going to end up, but it's not looking great at the moment. And there's all sorts of uh, the Democrats on Capitol Hill have been focused on this number, 3.5 trillion, and that's kind of like a, it become a bit of a totem, you know. But there's all sorts of different programs that go into that. And, uh, you know, a lot of the insider DC sheets are kind of almost gleeful at what they're seeing now. Because they're seeing, you know, Democrats feel, you know, appearing very crestfallen. I saw, I think it was Politico, they use the word Joe Biden's, the 3.5 trillion has now been uh, relabeled, repackaged or titled as Joe Biden's social spending dream. And, you know, and maybe maybe what Joe Manchin is doing is he's making it that right. But it didn't seem like that a few weeks ago. And maybe we were we were naive. Who knows? In any case, when I was looking at these reports uh, last night and they're like, well, you know, maybe free community college is going by the wayside or maybe, you know, free uh, or, you know, subsidized child care, maybe this or maybe that. A million things, child refundable child tax credits long list of things, all very important, very important. But what I was struck by is that I didn't see any reference to what to me is the the kind of the sine qua non existential thing, which is the climate part of the package. I mean, I don't, it's always a very perilous thing, starting conversations among people you generally agree with about what's the most important. Like it's all important. What's the most important? And so for something like the For the People Act, to me, it's all important, but the redistricting piece is the thing that is truly transcendent. Campaign finance stuff, yeah, that's important. Protections on, on, on the ability to vote, very important. But redistricting is, is kind of, you can stack the whole thing. Or it doesn't even matter that much if you have the right to vote, if it kind of doesn't even, doesn't even matter. For me... With this whole infrastructure thing, the climate part of it is the, is the absolutely critical thing. And again, that's not to diminish the other stuff, but we can have social democracy in 10 years, right? I mean, we've done, a, we've done without it for this long, but we really don't have that much time on the climate front. I mean, and who misses this? I mean, it, here in the Northeast, I mean, in the Northeast, not even in Florida, or in like Louisiana, it's like we have a major hurricane once a week now. It's, it's it's crazy, and yes, I mean, hopefully we will see that the last year has been, you know, a a a bump on the slow you know rise of climate chaos, but it's been pretty bad. I I I mean, are who isn't paying attention to this? And what part of the country are you are you in where you're not seeing this? Certainly not the Southeast, certainly not the Northeast, certainly not the West, which is like constantly on fire now. So that even like our air quality here in the, on the East Coast sucks. So, as I said, everything is suddenly terrible. We're going to talk about that with my, with my uh, co-host, Kate. But before we do that, let me remind you uh, that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. What better way, you know, I, fall is coming. We're kind of still in summer now, but fall, fall is on the way. So what better way to get through fall than Grady's New Orleans-style cold brew? 
made from special, a special blend of 100% Arabica beans, French chicory, and signature spices brewed overnight to give you a velvety smooth cup you can drink iced, hot, or spiked in a cocktail. Treat yourself to a gourmet cup of coffee without stepping foot outside, all for less than a buck a cup. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And let me give you, before I turn it over to Kate, let me give you a quick update on the theme song contest because we've all been listening uh the uh kate i and our producer jackie who does all the who turns all the dials and everything in the background and actually kind of makes this all work we've been going over the the songs and man i i was listening to them again this morning we don't have an announcement in this episode but i was listening to them again this morning and and they're so good and I, I had this great sense of gratitude like wow you actually you made this song for us that's so like i'm i'm so like that makes me feel so kind of, you know, warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> but I just love that thing. So anyways, that's me that's me jabbering on about the, <laughs> the theme song contest. And I think I think we'll probably have a winner by next week, but I but for now I just wanted to thank everybody who who entered. I think we what it was like 30 entries something like yep. that. Um so and they're they're just awesome and I I, I really appreciate it. So uh Kate, tell us uh give us an intro to to how everything's now terrible. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think you covered it well in your monologue. The big news of the day <laughs> is that Manchin, via unsourced leaks to kind of various Beltway insidery type publications, you know, I think Politico and Axios had it. That's where he decided to kind of follow up his his self-indulgent op-ed. Um, so it's just leaks to these outlets where he said, okay, one trillion, maybe 1.5, which I think that's a good juncture to remind everyone that Bernie Sanders' original bid for the reconciliation package was $6 trillion. So of all the people who are unhappy about this, I'm sure he's one of the least happy. Um, right. Well, I guess it's it 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 is it it it's worth pointing out that that you know notionally the the bipartisan bill is part of that number. So even if it were one trillion, it doesn't mean one trillion. It means well, and this is another thing where I saw I saw the bipartisan bill referenced yesterday as a one point two trillion dollar bill. But my recollection is when you when you remove all of the sort of the the shiny paper and stuff, it's dramatically less. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not really one point two trillion. I don't really remember. Yeah, all the I details think the new there. spending was like five hundred, six hundred billion of it was new. Right, and I mean, you know, <laughs> do we count old spending? I mean, that, that what, right. what does that even mean? Exactly, and I mean, part of this that has a little bit, I think, worked in Manchin's favor is that we've all been using three point five trillion as kind of shorthand. But the reality of it is, it's three point five trillion over ten years. So it's not like you know he's pretending it's this you know wanton, irresponsible clump of money. It's like it's obviously a lot of money. I'm not saying that, but it's not three point five trillion in one day. It's stretched out over a decade. You know. Well, it's funny. One thing. One thing I was so I. I saw someone propose was sort of like, why not just but you know count it over two years and call it six hundred billion? I mean, you know, whatever it would be, because because mm-hmm. the one point, and I, I I actually I need to do some reporting on this, or actually I need to kind of find one of you guys and, and say <laughs> I need an answer to this because I because we're sort of operating on this idea that you actually can bind the Congress and and the U.S. government for 10 years into the future. But you can't. You have to appropriate money. Every, I mean, you can have the law that says X is going to happen, Y is going to happen, uh, uh, Z, you know, uh, Z is going to happen. But the money's got to be appropriated every year. So you can, it, it's it's just kind of a plan that you're going to do it. Future Congresses can cut it short and, and, and even cut it short in ways that are, uh, even if you have a democratic president, if you have, you know, if you don't have unified control, it can get cut short pretty clearly. So yeah, there is kind of, um, maybe that's, maybe that's how they're going to square some of these circles. If you can't, what if you only count it over six years and say, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can, you can do that. Um, but yeah. Manchin. Yeah. And the, and the thing about mansion, it's just this whole time, 
so much of watching him is trying to figure out where his motivation comes from, you know, and as someone who obviously I don't know him personally, it's just trying to figure out what is naivete, what is rose colored glasses, what is and what is absolute cynicism and just trying to find where he kind of is on that on that sliding scale. But in this case, it's just the thing that gets me is the 3.5 top line number was unveiled a while ago by this point. And that was kind of the first question everyone asked was like, okay, cool, is Mansion on board? And we heard not a peep from him for weeks, even weeks into the recess. And then all of a sudden, we get this Wall Street Journal op-ed in the same week that these very powerful com- companies have launched their full-fledged lobbying effort to shrink the package because, you know, Democrats are seeking to pay for a lot of it through uh, upping corporate taxes, which they don't want to pay. So, you know, and it, mm, coincidence, perhaps, but the, the timing of it strikes me as so odd. And that's the thing that always happens with Manchin, I think, is like, you introduce this idea, everyone waits with bated breath to see where he stands on it. He seems fine with it. And then time passes and somebody talks in his ear and then he decides that he's not for it anymore. You know, that's something I've been concerned about with the clean electricity payment program this whole time, which is kind of like the crux of Democrats' climate proposals, which to anyone who looks at it for more than five seconds, you realize the what it's really going to do is basically price dirty source energy sources out of the market, which of course includes Joe Manchin's beloved coal. Um, And so, you know, you're like, well, I'm sure he won't be in favor of this, but it's something he hasn't really talked about it. You know, Tina Smith, who's the the senator from Minnesota, who's been working on it a lot, says she's been keeping up updated, you know, but it's the kind of thing where you can't really feel comfortable because at any moment he could turn around and be like, someone else talked in his ear and now he's, no, 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 I'm against that. That's bad for West Virginia. You know? Yeah. I, I, I have a similar confusion, um, about him that when, when they came to that 3.5 trillion dollar number, I remember at one point, I think when they voted on it, you know, voted it out of, out of the Senate or maybe out of the, uh, uh, budget committee, even though he's not on it, they had, I think Mark Warner was kind of the guy, the sort of the centrist whisperer there to kind of, you know, to to sprinkle water on it. And Manchin was like, yeah, moving forward, doing this. And then and then a little while later, he said something like, hey, 3.5 is not set in stone. I'm like, okay, I got it. You know, you want to you wanna knock a little off, something like that. But yeah, there was... <laughs> definitely all the signals that he was broadly speaking on board with that scale. I think, you know, we talked about this a month ago or six weeks ago, said, look, it's not going to be 3.5 trillion, maybe, you know, knock it down to 3.4, 3.3, whatever. But yeah, going down to one, I mean, <laughs> and and again, that's a bargaining position, but that's not a bargaining position that you get back to 3.5 from to put it mildly. And on the on the part about like naivete or cynicism, again, I, I mean, I've got a bit of a sense of him because I, I don't know him, but I know people who do know him. And one of the things about that Wall Street Journal op-ed he wrote was he talked about, well, runaway inflation and also that like if COVID continues, we need to kind of, you know, not run out of money. Right. Well, first of all, there's not runaway inflation. That's nonsense. There is inflation is an issue right now. I think the consensus, certainly what the Federal Reserve, which is not made up of like, you know, pinko liberals, right? They think it is basically transitional, not, not, you know, um, not something that is going to kind of get built into the economy like it was in the 70s when all, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's it's not it's not runaway. It's basically le- less than it was in the eighties when when you know everybody loved Ronald Reagan because he'd allegedly tamed inflation. So that that is when someone says, "Hey, the debt is too high," you know, you got to can't got to cut the deficit. Well, I mean, yes, there's a big federal debt. I mean, you you can you can dispute 
whether that matters, whether we, you know, how much we should care about it, but it's a reality. And inflation right now is, is not a reality in the way that he's describing. Um, and then you get to like, well, what if COVID? Well, dude, come on. I'm not really seeing you as the type who, who wants to come back next year and spend $2 trillion on COVID. Like, I, I, that's, not, that's not plausible. And the other thing, as you explained, Kate, this isn't going to be spent in a year. This is going to be spent over a decade. So if if you really get into a jam, you can change it. So so the things he's saying don't really make a lot of sense. Um, and and I think I think I mean that as as much as one can um, as much as one can get out of their own personal premises and biases, and it just doesn't make it 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 literally doesn't make any sense what he's what he's talking about and my sense with mansion is he's really you know mansion is that sort of dc insider culture loves a guy like mansion because it's the centrists who are always right it's it's not the far left the far right it it's the sort of the this kind of goldilocks mentality and um you know there's a reason uh he uh, leaks things, and suddenly it's the you know it's the big it's the big exclusive in the in in the insider sheets and stuff like that. My sense is is that he's you know I don't know if it's because this corporation that corporation you know pushing to kind of cut down the taxes or whatever. I think it's more that he's just very responsive to that insider culture, a kind of a creature of it. And those are the kind of reasons you give that sound like you're being serious. Yeah, I just, I don't understand. I just, I fundamentally don't understand how he came into this term and his big refrain was, we're going to make sure Joe Biden is a successful president. We're going to make sure he has a successful administration and then can kind of turn around now. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure your theory sounds plausible to me. I'm sure he he's loving the idea of like, look at me pissing off my own party in public. Like I'm so good at being a centrist, but he's got to know that if he either kind of sinks reconciliation altogether or tries to shrink it to such an extent that it sets off a progressive rebellion, either way, basically killing this entire slate of legislation that he will be the one person who's personally responsible for killing the entire democratic agenda for the foreseeable future. And I don't think that's hyperbolic. I mean, this is pretty much all Democrats can count on while he (laughs) insists on maintaining the filibuster. I mean, this is it. It's the last train out of town until at least 2022 when all the good money seems to be on Democrats losing at least one chamber. And then that's it for Joe Biden's entire first term. And that doesn't sound like a super glowing report card to run for re-election on. So that's the part that is so baffling to me. Is it like maybe that's just the bare reality? Maybe he's more interested in his own political brand than he is the fate of the leader of his party or his fellow you know, lawmakers who are going to be up for re-election. Maybe that's just the bare truth of it, but it it just seems kind of baffling to me. You know, the one the one thing that someone said to me about about Mansion a few months ago, and it's it's the one thing that I think has really kind of stood up in my mind that really is a sufficient explanation uh, that covers everything is that he basically just makes the stuff up as he goes along and i and makes it makes up is is maybe overstating it um but he comes into each day getting a sense of the mood and what he's feeling like and says that and so yeah president biden comes in he's no known biden for a number of years and yeah you know got to make joe biden successful president and after this stuff out of Afghanistan, when, uh, you know, president's getting a lot of bad press and all this kind of stuff, well, suddenly we got to take a pause, you know, no more spending like crazy and got to be responsible. And, and 
all those the the comments make sense if you w- woke up that day and kind of got a feeling for where things were at and just said something. And I I kind of think that's it, right? I mean, because remember early in the early in the uh, you know back in the spring there was that one point where he's like, you know, we got to make the filibuster a little harder. It's getting out of hand, right? And what happened to that? That didn't that I mean. <laughs> just again, I, 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 I think he's. I don't think he's uh, particularly ideological. I don't think he's got like a, you know, sort of like a, a particularly strong agenda. Um, I don't think it's true that he basically wants to be a Republican or he's secretly a Republican. If he wanted to be a Republican, he could be a Republican. And frankly, his his he'd be less he'd be less prominent, Mm -hmm. but I mean, he could be a Republican or he could, you know, he could, uh, become an independent and there's all sorts of shit he could do. He's, he supported the ACA, blah, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but I, but I think that's it. I think he kind of makes it up as he goes along and his, um, antenna are focused on the kind of insider buzz in DC. He's very much a creature of that town. And that's the best explanation I can give. And I think that is, I think that's accurate. Well, let's move on to um, perhaps an equally depressing topic, which is that we're still kind of in the aftershocks of the Supreme Court decision last week, which virtually outlawed abortion in Texas. Um, You know, I'm sure you remember, but a quick recap, the court decided not just didn't do anything the night that the law came into effect. About 12 hours later, we got some minimal reasoning about why they were letting the law stand. The conservative majority basically said because the law was designed to evade judicial review, their hands were simply tied. There's nothing they can do about it. Um, The liberals plus John Roberts dissented, uh, Sotomayor's dissent in particular, which everyone should read if they haven't. It's not that long. And her rage just, you can feel the the heat emanating off the page. But so now we're in a place where Texas is basically without the constitutional protections that, you know, that Roe and Casey had enshrined for so long. Um, and the rest of the country is just kind of trying to grapple with it. You know, you've got other Republican legislatures saying they're going to make copycat laws of Texas to basically shove the judicial system out of out of contention altogether. You've got basically desperate Democrats trying to figure out how do you undo what is basically the conclusion of a multi-decade project by Republicans to load up the judiciary and, and state legislatures with um, Republican power. Um, and then you kind of have those ideas get brought up to the to the national level. You know, what can what can Democrats do while they control all three branches about this? And you run into, oh, look, Joe Manchin again. But I mean, most of these things go beyond Joe Manchin. But, you know, ideas like expanding the Supreme Court or passing federal abortion protections, none of which really the Democratic caucus has shown the political will to do. So I think you've got a lot of Democratic supporters and constituents feeling like the wind is really taken out of their sails. Let let me ask you a question on that. And I I haven't, I'm sure it's been reported. I have not seen it. But Mm -hmm. do we know as a practical matter, whether abortion clinics in Texas in the few days that this has been going on, if they're still performing abortions? I've seen almost nothing about that. Really, the only reporting I've seen is that like clinics in neighboring states are being flooded with uh, right. appointment requests. I mean, I, I guess it's the kind of thing where, where given the way the law works, the clinics are not going to say, hey, we did three today. You know, right. I mean, they, <laughs> exactly. so, so, but I, I assume, I'm curious, maybe it's probably a little hard to know and, and sort of maybe moot at, 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 at some level. Um, the, I mean, the one thing, you know, the reality is on the courts that, that ship sailed, mm-hmm. that had, that already happened. And it's funny because I don't, I, I never want to be, um, 
you, you know, kind of throw a cold blanket on people. But but I, I'm I'm struck sometimes people need to hear that that already happened. You know, it's sort of like you <laughs> you jump out of a building it takes a while to hit the ground, right? But we, that already happened. It, it's it's you know this is just a fallout of things that already happened. I mean, in the case of uh, Justice Barrett, uh, coming up on a year ago now. Um, but that already happened, and uh, as you said, there's not or there, there's not going to be any expansion of the Supreme Court on, in in this Congress. Um, the the thing that jumps out to me, or sort of my antenna, because the one thing I think I'm halfway good at is kind of thinking through political dynamics, is that Democrats who are up for election now have been talking about this nonstop. Terry McCall from Virginia, Gavin Newsom has the recall coming up nonstop. That's all they can talk about. And it's been very telling to me, not surprising, but telling, that Republicans, except for the most extreme anti-abortion Republicans, Republicans, their message has been like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? Nothing happened. Oh, you're saying... Roe v. Wade was gutted. No, it wasn't. Nothing happened at all. What's what's what are you even talking about? It's it's just the same as it's ever been. And when you press them, say, oh well, maybe, yeah. There, I heard there might be a few more restrictions. Basically, they want to run away from it. And so, what is what is what has my attention here is that one of the reasons that Republicans have have done so much politically over a few decades now with an issue that with, with a position that is not a majority position there's really you can get all sorts of answers when you poll about abortion rights because you have a majority of people who support the right to an abortion but a significant slice of those people don't want to hear about it and they don't want to see it. And they think it's kind of shameful. And all that kind of stuff. And so Republicans have been able to make a lot of, um, have a lot of political gains by doing these things on the margins, you know, late term abortion and this and fetal, you know, kind of you have to you have to check for a heartbeat and make sure the, the 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 pregnant woman hears the heartbeat. All these kind of you know all these kind of things. Because again, there's a there's a a big slice of the electorate that kind of doesn't want to hear about it. They want it to be there in a pinch, but they don't want to hear about it. And shameful, there all sorts of stuff. But you get those people. But it actually comes down to okay, it's going to be illegal. That's not a popular position. In fact, it's not a popular position at all. And you can kind of see Republicans recoiling from that now. And, and if anything, just again, to put it in really brass tacks political dynamics, one of the biggest trends in electoral politics in the last five or six years has been affluent suburbanites, particularly affluent suburbanite women trending towards the Democratic Party. And this is almost tailor-made. If you want to lock that in and increase that, this is this is how to do it. Um, so I'm just very curious, you know, is this gonna be is this gonna be a big driving issue in 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 2022? I mean, for it to be, you have to kind of um you have to have something be on the table. And and the obvious thing to be on the table is that you just in that you just you just legislate, you know, kind of Roe Casey, the current whatever the whatever the status quo ante is right now. You just make that a law. And but you have to be willing to make it a law. You know, for for it to for it to kind of have traction in partisan terms, you can't say, you know, vote for me, I'm a Democrat. And if if we win, we won't enact it. Because we don't have 50 votes in the filibuster. You know, <laughs> you got to kind of get it. You have to make it an operational thing, right? And um, there are ways to swing that. Uh, 
but I'm but I'm 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 curious how that plays out. Yeah, it's interesting. I was trying to find it quickly, but uh, again, Tina Smith, the senator from Minnesota, had a thread that was just like I'd never really. I'd rarely seen an, an elected official talk with such candor. You know, it's the kind of stuff that you're usually seeing. Oh, yeah, around. I saw that. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, like AOC is the only type who usually talks that that honestly about what's going on. But she basically said, we could bring all this stuff up for a vote right now. We could bring up, a, you know, a law that would codify abortion rights and all this kind of stuff. But she said, we don't have the votes for it. We don't have the votes for that. We don't have the votes for getting rid of the filibuster. And was just kind of honest about the fact that this is why we need Democrats to vote in 2022, because we need more seats. We need more people who are willing to make those votes. Well, let's let's talk about some mechanics here, because I think most of our listeners know about the filibuster part of this. We've been living that, we've been living this filibuster nightmare for eight months or whatever it is. Um, but more specifically, there are at least two, and you probably know more about this than I do, but I'm thinking of Joe Manchin and uh, is it Robert Casey? What's Casey's first name? Senator Bob. Casey. Bob yeah. Casey. Yeah, Robert. Um, Bob Casey from Pennsylvania. Now, Casey comes from this kind of, for lack of a better word, sort of anti-abortion family, right? Because his his dad was the governor of Pennsylvania back in like the late 80s, early 90s. And he was really anti-abortion rights. And and he was one of the, he was, that, that was in that period where there wasn't a total lineup partisan and abortion rights. And he was kind of one of the last prominent Democrats who was very down the line. And his son is kind of there, but a little, a little, little looser on that. I think he's sort of nominally pro-life. Um, and Joe Manchin is too. And yet, and so like, you know, when there's ever a question about, you know, federal funding of abortions or, you know, um, funding of, of abortions or abortion rights overseas and all that kind of stuff, they're always against it. But I noticed that, that, you know, not that it matters that much, but like in the last couple Supreme Court nominations, Manchin has said, hey, don't, don't nominate someone who will overrule Roe. So they're pro-life, but they're kind of like, don't, let's leave it how it is. So I think it's a bit of an open question, at least for now. Those are not votes you're going to get for that like federal row bill, for lack of a better word. So you've got, so maybe you only get, you don't even get 50 votes from Democrats. And I don't know, I don't even have a sense at this point in the Republican caucus, like, who's pro-choice? I assume Collins is. Is Murkowski maybe? Um, so it's not even clear you get 50 votes, even if you didn't have a filibuster. But, but you can certainly make the argument if you're, uh, you know, the, the people who are running in, in, in Pennsylvania for the open seat there, you can say, hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I will vote to end the filibuster and I will, I will vote for the Roe law. So elect me. And um, you only need 50 votes for both. There's no magic about the, the filibuster. It's just a 50 vote vote to get rid of it. So again, it's optimistic, but it's not impossible you end up with like 52 or 53 Democratic senators. I'm not saying that's likely, but it's not impossible. It's by no means impossible. We don't know where things are going to be a year from now. And if you did, then something like that could really be on the table. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of curious because you always have, there are very few Democrats nowadays in this category, but abortion's a very electric issue. And a lot of senators would probably just, oh, I don't want to, you know, can we not vote on that? Can we not? Yeah, I do wonder if having Biden specifically as president smooths the path for someone like a Bob Casey in that way, because I actually do think he has pretty adroitly manage the I'm you know I'm a man of faith Catholicism you know obviously is pro-life but you know the way that the the press secretary particularly has been saying it is that's his personal belief he doesn't believe that yep. you should kind of force other people to abide by your beliefs which I think along with being a, a position that is probably in line with most Catholics or definitely Catholics who identify also as Democrats is you know, I think a, a kind of neat, tidy, makes sense kind of way to, yep. to 
deal with that. And I think that as particularly a Bob Casey, you know, again, Manchin might just want to stand in the way of this. But I think if Bob Casey was trying to find a way to kind of be with his party on this and keep his personal beliefs, that's the way to thread the needle. I think that's right. I think he's probably also in the camp of like, would you know, do we have to vote on this? Right. You know, kind of like it's because clearly his his political persona in Pennsylvania has been based on pro-choice people can, you know, he's not a crusader. He's not, he's not trying to take away abortion rights. Pro-life people can also be like, oh, he's pro-life and he voted against this and voted against that. Um, and I think you have the other issue. I mean, to me, my big impulse is just vote on it. Let's just get, let's just vote on it. Cause, cause well, let's just see where everybody stands. Right. Um, I think there's a lot of, there would be a lot of Democrats who are against that. And I mean, people like in DC and stuff and, and they have a point kind of like, do you really want to vote on it when it's not going to work? Like, how does, how does that help the Democrats? Kind of like, okay, we voted on it and maybe we even got 51 votes, but there's the filibuster. Wah, wah, wah. I mean, it's, it's, you don't want to set yourself up for failure. Um, and I can see both sides of it. But again, you, that's potentially a very galvanizing issue in, in, in 2022. And that's, that's aside from the fact that like, it would be good to just protect abortion rights aside from like, you know, the democratic party, you know, being able to benefit politically from, you know, from, uh, focusing politics on it, but you've got to put something on the table. Yeah. I mean, my only reaction is like, in a slightly different context, but the initial plan going into this term was that Schumer was going to set up a bunch of votes that Republicans would filibuster to show Manchin and Sinema that there will never be 10 Republican votes on, you know, X, Y, Z. And I watched a few of those votes and I even wrote up a few of them and- No one cares. No one cares. There's just, there's no drama. People know they're going to fail. They don't really get covered. The way Congress works literally, you know, from the perspective of like watching C-SPAN is long and boring and hard to tell what's going on. So it just, I was kind of envisioning at the beginning of this term, these like vote, 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 filibuster, 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 like, you know, punctuated with speeches about how this is not how democracy should work. And like, this is minoritarian rule. And Mr. Smith goes to Washington and instead it's just... Okay, vote fails, next order on the docket. You know, it's just not as dramatic as I would have thought. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that play into that. And some of it is bad news coverage. Mm-hmm. And some of it is the sociology of the parties. Um, I, I read an article yesterday that is the thousandth article that I've read on this topic since I've been in this line of work. And I've written close to a thousand of them talking about that Republicans approach political power very differently than Democrats do. And the one I was reading, kind of like they get power, Democrats don't. And that's true in a lot of ways, but it's always important to come back to, okay, why? Why is that? Is it, is it just that we keep electing the same feckless people over and over again as Democrats? Well, kind of, but again, it, it's the, the real thing is to kind of see how it is kind of baked into the sociology of the party itself, of both parties. There's ways that it's good to be the authoritarian party. Everybody falls in line, right? It's different. Um, now, having, having said that, I was struck because I saw Amy Klobuchar, Senator Klobuchar from Minnesota over the weekend said, you know, this is bullshit. We got to, you know, filibuster's archaic. You got to get rid of it to pass this row bill. Now, I assume since basically kind of everybody, you know, almost the entire caucus is ready to get rid of or at least significantly change the filibuster, I guess she's one of those people too, but I haven't heard her crusading about it. I've never heard like when it's come up on the For the People Act or any, like I haven't heard her kind of ringing this bell. So when I heard that, I was kind of like, huh, is this going to kind of make it real? Because it's a different, um, it, it just motivates a different political coalition. And I was kind of curious, is that getting any traction? What I, when I talked to some of our colleagues, you know, some of our, our TPM colleagues yesterday, they were kind of like, eh, not really. No one's really picked that up. But I, but I wonder, 
Because the, the reality is that for better or worse, the politics of abortion are just really, really different from the politics of voting rights. Yeah. And it, they just are, you know, it's and that just, doesn't, yeah. No, it's funny because I would say like a week before all this went down with abortion in the Supreme Court. And at this point, it's like people who watch the court carefully knew what was going on. But I would say most of us who don't really regularly cover reproductive rights were taken aback at it. So it wasn't really on the forefront of conversation then. But I was just doing some reporting to do kind of a state of play and where are anti-filibuster activists? How are they feeling? Do they see a path forward? What's changed? And someone who I was talking to brought up that they think a big thing that's going to start happening, it's going to start motivating people is the abortion issue, which, you know, he was telling me that women's groups for a while. Was this Adam? Been, no, no, no. This oh, was someone, um, someone at the, the Fix Our Senate group. But um, he was saying that for a long time, like women's groups have been very wary about kind of going at the, or for a long time, for this term, have been wary about going after the filibuster because I think there is a fear that if there was no filibuster, when Republicans gain power, they will cut out abortion access all over the country. And they were worried about that, but that they're increasingly coming to a position that's kind of a common sense position that why would what Democrats do with a filibuster now have any bearing on what Republicans do with the filibuster when they're back in power? You know, there's just so basically coming, getting into touch with reality. Yeah. It's always been such this silly notion to me that, well, if Democrats don't touch the filibuster, that's a guarantee that Mitch McConnell never will. Like why? I mean, based on what he's shown willingness to blow it up when it suited his purposes before. And I think the only reason that he didn't, while well, Trump was in office and Republicans had unified control was everything they wanted to pass. They could do without getting rid of the filibuster because they only really cared about judges and tax cuts. So they just didn't, you know, they, they didn't clear an obstacle that would be in the way for Democrats. But, you know, that argument has just always seemed very silly to me. And I do think in line with what you're saying, now we've reached the point where if, you know, these kind of women's groups or abortion rights groups want to throw their weight behind the eradication or reform of the filibuster, we've kind of reached the point where it's like, well, what is there to lose? Right. Well, I'm, I'm curious because, I mean, there's, there's two things about abortion and it kind of, I feel very uncomfortable about this because voting rights is also really, really important, right? It shouldn't, it, it, it kind of shouldn't be this way, but A, obviously it is a profoundly personal, immediate, and almost existential issue for, there's various ways to think how much of the population that applies to, because obviously it's not all women, because they're, they're pro-life women, but still, it's a huge issue. And our, you and our female listeners don't need me, a guy, to, to say that. So there, there's that. But there's also another kind of less pretty version of it, that affluent white women punch way above their weight politically. And this goes right to that constituency. And the reality is that may make it more potent for getting rid of the filibuster than it's been for voting rights or immigration or a lot of other stuff. Um, so I don't, I don't like that that's the case, but I think it might be the case. And I, I'm honestly not, I'm honestly not sure. And, and, and that's the, the reality too, that if on a more, not cynical, but on a more political view, if you want that to become an, a political advantage for Democrats, you've got to put something on the table. You've got to say vote for us because we're going to pass this and we're just going to, and we're not, then we're going to stop worrying about what the Supreme Court does because it'll be a federal law. This will be done. You're not going to have to worry about this anymore. I think that's potentially pretty motivating. Uh, you can't just say, hey, we're pro-choice and, and we'll hold some hearings. And that's not going to, you know, who gives a shit? You've really got to have something on the table. Yep. All right, let's take some questions now. We're, we're getting a little late in the game here. So our first is from Robert, who basically asks regarding Supreme Court and Democratic ambition to rebalance at the court, not trying to be defeatist, but I'm wondering how this would actually work in practice. And then he kind of went through 
examples of how if Democrats did things, what stops Republicans from doing them back? You know, Democrats add seats, what stops Republicans from adding seats? And then things like Democrats make D.C. a state, what's to stop Republicans from, I don't know, splitting Texas into two states? You know, things like that. What is to stop anything that Democrats do from being counterbalanced by Republican kind of reaction later? I guess I would say there's a couple different vantage points to approach this at. One is that I don't think you can ever approach anything you are doing from the perspective if you get a, if you get yourself into a situation where the answer is in every case not to act at all because of what the other side will do, you need to say okay, my my logic is off here. Because because my logic is getting me to inaction. And so I'm not even getting into the ring. I'm conceding the fight in advance. So I just, I think at a basic foundational level, that has to be how we think about things. A logic, an approach to politics in which the answer is, I can't do anything. Your logic is off. Rethink the logic because it, that can't be where you get. The second point is on, um, well, the, the second point is Republicans already do all those things. They already they already keep the Supreme Court at eight people for a year and a half to steal a seat. They're already doing all the things that you're worried about. So that's two. On the specifics of adding members to the Supreme Court, I think that's actually a feature rather than a bug. Because let's say that uh, Democrats increase the court to 13 justices. And six years later, the Republicans increase it to 19 justices. I don't think that's the end of the world because what, you, what you're doing in general is you are decreasing the all or nothing stakes to packing the judiciary. You are lessening the influence of the judiciary because it's, it's more politically, it can be pushed back and forth. And I think that's a good thing because what we have allowed to happen is the, the Republicans packed the judiciary. And, you know, hats off to them. They did a really good job and they were disciplined and they were focused over a few decades. And now that's where we are. That's not how the judiciary should should function. So to the extent that that would happen, again, I think that's a good thing because it would it would diminish, not eliminate, but it would tap down the judiciary's current role of really being, you know, in Iran, they have that thing, the Guardian Council. You know, you, you've got in Iran, you've actually got a, in some ways, a real democracy as long as the Guardian Council agrees <laughs> on everything you do. So that, that's, my, that's my sense on, um, on, on expanding the court specifically. And again, more broadly, if your logic tells you not even to get into the ring, your logic's a problem. Yeah, I have two thoughts here. One of which is just, I don't think there's any viable short-term political argument for Democrats that starts with, we controlled all three branches of government, but X, Y, Z, we're not able to do X, Y, Z. And, you know, to people like me and you and everyone listening who follow the minutiae of this, we know that on the filibuster, we're talking two people, right? We're not talking the whole caucus, but I don't think that matters. I think that when you're going into an election to sell your constituents you guys did everything you could to get us power to, you know, win both chambers to topple Trump. And we didn't do anything about it. It's just, that's just a stinker. I don't know how you can turn that into something that doesn't just totally demoralize people. So from that perspective, and I realize there are intractable obstacles like Joe Manchin in the way of doing some of the stuff that Robert suggests here. But I just think politically, this might be the only time Democrats have unified control for years. I think you should be absolutely passing everything you, everything you possibly can, um, including you know that kind of stuff. And also the second point, which kind of wraps into it, is the notion that Republicans won't do something because Democrats didn't want to do it, whether that be because Democrats are trying to follow the rule book or trying to be bipartisan. We've seen it disproved over and over and over. Like nothing will hold in the Republican Party, especially as it's just becoming increasingly authoritarian. And we've now seen 
for at least a decade that Republican tactics have been win at all costs, no matter if you're leaving democratic norms in flames behind you. So I just don't think that democratic restraint has any bearing on what Republicans will do down the road. And when Democrats make those arguments, they're both giving the Republican Party legitimacy it has not shown that it deserves and tying their own hands out of fear of something Republicans probably will do as soon as it benefits them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, next question from a fellow Kate. Uh, Why didn't Biden just wait until after the midterms to get out of Afghanistan? I know it was a terrible forever war, but if he knew it would be so hard, why didn't he wait until they had at least gotten infrastructure done? He could have pulled out even if he was a lame duck after 2022. Go ahead. Well, it's funny because I first read this and my, my knee jerk reaction was, oh, well, you know, Trump made his deal with the Taliban. And I do think that has a lot of bearing. But to be specific, the deal was that we'd pull out in May and Biden was able to push that until August. Now, I don't know if he would have been been able to push that to something like after 2022. I mean, it seems like at some point the Taliban would say, this is the deal. You either pull out or we're going to start killing people. Um, But I am kind of intrigued by the notion of waiting until infrastructure passed. I don't know how you communicate that to the Taliban, but it's it's an interesting idea. Yeah, well, it's also... um it it certainly looks like an attractive prospect in retrospect uh for all the reasons we've discussed uh you know part of it is you don't know when infrastructure is going to pass right right and and um ending a military presence is not something you can just kind of let ride and do it it just doesn't work that way and i i think look i think part of the answer is they did not know it was going to be quite that dramatic i still very much think that we as a country are much better off now than we were a month ago. Um, for the interest of the United States, we're better off. And I don't think it went that poorly. But clearly, the political you know, damage speaks for itself. Um, I don't think they realized it was going to have quite that imp- impact. I think that's just, we just need to be frank about that. That's not, again, I don't think that goes to the sort of the planning and all that kind of stuff. It's hard to figure political impact, or they didn't figure it. I think also, though, when we talk about the the, the midterms, what we're really talking about is the spring of 2023, at the earliest, okay? And what that means is coming in, you know, spring of 2021, six months ago, and basically telling the Taliban, you know what, we're not going to, we're actually not going to leave for another two years, I think it's pretty clear the deal you had, which had led to kind of a semi ceasefire, kind of, you know, de-escalating, that would be done. And I think it is, it seems pretty clear to me that you would have had them kind of go back to an aggressive posture. We probably would have had to increase the number of troops we had in the country to deal with that, to not have things kind of fall apart in the meantime. So I I don't I don't think that was really plausible because I think what that would have meant is scrapping that deal, bringing more troops in, not 100,000 like like Obama had, but you know, not 2500, maybe go up to closer to 10,000, um have things escalate for a couple of years. And and is there and and let's just think of this in terms of the people making the decision. Are, are you really going to justify that to yourself to protect the midterm? That's, that's, you know, people do all sorts of very cynical things, but that's a pretty cynical thing. Um, so I just, I don't think that was really possible. And sure, kind of like, could you have inked, you know, reconciliation a month ago and do this in October? Yeah, that probably that looks pretty good in retrospect, but we haven't even finished infrastructure now. So I think that is on all those different fronts, significantly tougher than it than it looks. Mm-hmm. Okay, our last question is from John, who says, when will Joe Biden finally have a one-on-one conversation with Joe Manchin to say, hey, everyone bent over backwards to get your bipartisan deal through. Now you need to do your part. Is there any sign of communication between the two Joes? Um, and finally, will Joe Biden actually go through with not signing the bipartisan deal if the other isn't on his desk? As to the first part, the 
the Biden on on mansion pressure. This was kind of the fundamental point of a story I published a few days ago. But when I was checking in with these people who are kind of in tune with the filibuster debates on the Hill and everything, it's uniform frustration across the board. And I'm talking from the, the more progressive wing to kind of the Senate veteran types who tend to be a little more sedate, a little more, well, stuff moves slowly here and, and know the personalities involved it, across the board. Just this sense of bafflement that Biden hasn't used his influence in any way that anyone I talk to knows about on Manchin or in public, you know, and it, until, you know, maybe now this will shift to an abortion thing. But up till this point, the filibuster abolitionists have kind of decided that the voting rights issue is the most compelling to talk about getting rid of the filibuster. So that's been the big selling point. And I just have person after person tell me, we've seen what it looks like when Joe Biden really wants to get things done. Because when it came to the infrastructure stuff, he deputized a team who went to the Hill all the time. He went in person to Senate lunches. He gave a series of speeches. He sent out cabinet secretaries to barnstorm around the country. I mean, we've seen what that looks like. And there's been nothing comparable on voting rights at all. You know, he gave one speech in Philadelphia in July that ended up pretty much really pissing off these people because he he talked a great storm about We've got a passport the people. What Republicans are doing is unacceptable. And then he said, you know, not a word about the filibuster, which to everyone watching was basically, okay, so he tried to use rhetoric to cover up his reluctance to push for getting rid of the filibuster. And without that, nothing else you say matters. You know, it's the same thing as Kirsten Sinema saying we must pass the For the People Act and then acting like she's not one of the two obstacles to doing so. So I don't know. I mean... And it it is interesting. I was thinking about this while you were talking about abortion, perhaps becoming the crux of the anti-filibuster battle. That issue just seems uniquely bad for Biden to be the one who takes the lead on it. And again, maybe we'll see the way that he's kind of threaded the needle with his his own faith and, and the issue so far. But it just it doesn't seem to me one that he'll be super stoked about being out in front of. Right. In, in right. a series of public addresses meant to cajole these senators or, you know, behind closed doors, whatever it may be. Yeah. I, I you know, look, I, I have always, and I, I have to defer to people who are up there and, and I think know more about this than I do. But my sense has always been he has not pushed because he doesn't think he can get it done. And you don't want to, it, it is very damaging for a president to sort of say, hey, it's got to happen and it doesn't happen. And, and I, I, it has simply never been clear to me that Joe Biden has the power to make Joe Manchin move on this. And, and I, I could totally be wrong on that, but that, that's, that's kind of where I've been on this whole, on this whole conversation for months. I, I just don't, I don't think he has the power to do that. I, I, I think people have this idea that, that um, you know, when presidents say, you know, kind of shit's getting real, that everyone has to fall into line, but they don't. And I, I've just seen, I've seen the opposite too many times. Um, and yeah, so I, 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 I just, I just don't see that. And, and, and especially a president who's, president who's at 50%, certainly a president at 45%. Like, dude, whatever. I don't care what you say. So that's, yeah. you know, I don't know. I mean, I, and I did talk to Adam Gentleson about this, who we had on an insider briefing. Some of you might have attended earlier in the summer, but he's basically from the beginning been very vocal about this idea that you're talking about, Josh, to, to kind of push back against this idea that presidents are, you know, all powerful and, if they would just freaking use their bully pulpit, things would move. But my whole conversation with him was just about the fact that, you know, and he said, maybe mansion and cinema are truly unmovable. Maybe that's the reality, but you can't know that until you have a president personally lobbying them for months. And Mm -hmm. I do think that there is a way for him to do it. If he wanted to, that wouldn't be so public. Like the infrastructure stuff is, I mean, we're talking, we're not talking about, swaying American opinion. We're talking about swaying the opinion of two people. So I would argue that he could do that in a private way that wouldn't 
that wouldn't incorporate spending a ton of political capital on a series of speeches and things like that. Right. Right. And I really haven't gotten the idea that he's, that he's done that. And I do think a lot of people I talk to are just, you know, I don't think he himself is comfortable with getting rid of the filibuster, which might be the bare reality, but I just keeping demoralization on demoralization for, I think, democratic constituents. Yeah. It's, it's, I have had, I have had a hard time believing that's true. And I do not, the, the idea that he actually doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster himself. Um, I have had a, I, I have a hard time believing that is true, A. And I haven't really seen any evidence that it's true myself. Um, but like so many other things these days, we're kind of in the dark and we don't know. I mean, you know, has, has, have they had this conversation? If, the way you would have that conversation would not be public. You would try to really keep that one-on-one, you know, kind of like, dude, you, you, you talk to Manchin and say, hey, how do we get this done? Are you really saying you will absolutely never do this? Like, because you're, you're screwing me. You're screwing everybody. What's the, what's the story here? You're not going to, you're going to, that's going to be private. So like, how would we know? If it had even happened, that's the kind of that's the kind of conversation you have you have, and like you didn't tell anybody, but like one or two people in the White House. So, um, and again, you you keep it private by design. So, I guess that's the worst case scenario. Yeah, yeah. Behind you know. all this, nobody knows, but Biden has been lobbying Manchin, and Manchin still is not going to move. I mean, that would be the state of play. For the next few years right there. Well, and for our listeners, think about this. Why would Joe Manchin move? Why would anything Joe Biden says drive Joe Manchin? He's got his own franchise in West Virginia. It's not the Democratic Party that's helping him win those seats. I don't know if he's going to win re-election again there at all. But like, why would Joe Manchin? It would depend on him having a stake in something bigger than himself, I guess, which I don't know if he does. <laughs> who, who knows? Who knows? And on that cheerful note, yes. <laughs> should we bring yes. up everyone's day? Yes. Well, remember, <laughs> uh, the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. If you're ready to give it a try, you can get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So, all right. Talk Thanks, to you guys. later.